You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont, a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Now, before we get started, I have to say that I'm in a very perilous situation because my PS5 is currently plagued by the rest mode bug. This is so upsetting to hear. This I'm getting a Red Ring of Death flashbacks from the Xbox 360. It seems to be something that affects not only me, but I found a couple of people online who struggle with a similar thing, and there is no real fix at the moment, it seems. So basically, one of the features that the PS5 just obviously comes with is the rest mode so that at any given point you should be able to put the PS5 into rest mode and then it suspends the game and if you turn it back on then within I would say two seconds you're back in which is super neat especially if you have like several short um, intervals of play however what my PS5 does now is I think it only happens when I actually have a game running it doesn't happen when I'm just in the menu then I I send it into rest mode and it tries to initiate it, but then it just shuts down all of a sudden completely. And I can't turn it back on with the controller, but I have to press the power button twice. At the first time, it only beeps and does nothing else. And the second time, then it boots up. And then there's like, you know, uh, the PS5 hasn't been turned off properly. Database needs to be restored. Something like this. Yeah. So it does it doesn't really affect the operation of the PS5 in general, but it's just annoying to have such a, a new device that has such a bug and you can't effectively makes the rest mode unusable for me. That is annoying. That sounds like uh, it's almost as if the PS5 is thinking that every time that happens, you've completely unplugged it from a power source or something. That's exactly how it feels. Yeah. Yeah. That's very odd. Well, yeah. Like you say, is that uh, you know, corrupting all of your save data and making your life a living hell? Probably not, but it is annoying. It's the PS5. It should be working smoothly. It is annoying. It depends on the game how annoying it is. Like, if you have a game where you can save at any point, that's pretty cool. But I do remember playing Returnal. And in Returnal, oh, no. it's like, you know, in Returnal, you can't save. And if you turn yeah. off the console, if you shut off the game, then you have to restart the entire run. And sometimes these runs take several hours. And I've just had this problem persistently that I wanted to just send it into rest mode because I had something else to do. And I thought, okay, then I can continue later. No can do. Well, Godspeed. I hope that it gets resolved swiftly. Yeah, the Sony support is quite forthcoming. Um, I, I've tried everything I can try on my own, and now the next step will be to send it in. That's a bit more of a lengthier process, and one fear that I have is that they receive it and they check the hardware. And if they can't find anything wrong with the hardware, they'll just send it back. And that will just be like, you know, wasting three or four weeks of time and then getting the same kind of problem again. <laughs> I, had a, I had a similar panic attack moment. Um a couple of days ago where I'd, I had been playing uh, Tales of Arise, the new um, JRPG, and I had one trophy left to get. And uh, for whatever reason, the trophy popped for me, but then it took days to sink. And so I was in this horrible limbo where I thought, did I do all of that work to get the platinum just for it to cut me off at the last moment? Oh, that will be so painful. Oh, I was I was ready to be very upset, but luckily it it fixed itself. Yeah, usually trophy synchronization is something that happens over time. You never know when. It's always a surprise. Right. 
I also want to shout out that we've got a really nice comment from Kaylee Holtner. Last week, we discussed one of their articles um, on the question of whether it is legitimate to, let's say, endorse pirating a game like Metroid Dread directly after it released. Dan, you brought this article on the show and we discussed it and we made some counter arguments. And now Kaylee Holtner came over to leave us a nice comment with counter arguments uh, once more. So to all of you listening out there, if you're curious, I think it might at some point make sense that we do an entire episode on the question of, you know, the legitimacy of pirating games or something. I think so. But for now, we can just say if you want to read up on that debate, then please check out studyingpixels.com, the Squid Game episode. And of course, you can always reach us. You know that. You can send us emails to podcast at studyingpixels.com and you can reach us via social media. And of course, you also know that this show is a free and independent podcast. We do rely entirely on your support and that is why we offer you something in return. And that is Studying Pixels Plus, which is essentially our Patreon program. And if you decide to support us, because that's what we really need in order to keep this project alive then you get three wonderful things at once. First, you get our sincere gratitude and the good feeling of supporting an independent show. Secondly, you get a lovely sticker, and that sticker says, I am studying pixels, and underneath is our particularly cute mascot, Pixel Coon. And thirdly, you get a monthly plus episode. And this month, still, we announced it a couple of times already. We always mention it at the beginning of our regular free episodes. We did a plus episode on how not to write a term paper. So if you're just getting geared up for this winter term or this fall term uh, and you have some term papers to write, then this is something you definitely want to pay attention to. If you want to get Studying Pixels Plus, then please head over to studyingpixels.com plus to find out more. Today we want to focus on a myth, a really vast and particularly interesting video game myth. Yes. So, dear listeners, if you will, I want to take you back to a magical time that I refer to as the mid to late 1990s. <laughs> uh, if you can, if you can, uh, you know, hearken back with me, step through the veil of time and think about a time where the internet wasn't as prevalent as it is today. It was still kind of getting its footing, but video games were still very big and especially a game called Pokemon Red or Pokemon Blue. Uh, were very big on the playground at schools and schoolyards. And with popularity in schools and schoolyards comes a lot of rumors. And so those among you who are starting to feel the, the nostalgia creep up on your back may be thinking, I think Dan and Stefan are about to talk about Missing No from Pokemon Red and Blue. You would be right we to assume that. that. Yeah, yes. yeah. I remember that I was on a vacation with my family when Pokemon Red came out for the original Game Boy. Mm. And I saw it at Toys R Us. And that was so persistent. I was such a persistent little brat that eventually <laughs> <laughs> my parents just caved and were like, okay, I'm going to buy you this weird Pokemon thing, whatever it is. And I plugged it into my into my adapter for my Super Nintendo system where you could put in a Game Boy cartridge so that you could play it on a TV and it would be a little bit colored because normally yeah. these games were completely without color. But on the SNES, it would just add in a splice of, of very simple colors. And uh, that's the way I enjoyed and appreciated Pokemon. And that's still where my most nostalgic memories of this series are coming from. Well, I think, I think we have uh, 
we had similar bratty childhoods because I also, <laughs> uh, you know, I was a big fan of the, of the Pokemon show and I was so excited to get a game and, and it was one of the first games that I ever had really that was mine. And, uh, I remember being very closely attached to Pokemon blue version. And, uh, I think that's not an uncommon experience, um, for people who play video games because there is something very special about Pokemon, especially back in those days when it was new and exciting and, uh, a little mysterious too. Um, you know, that was kind of a, a, an interesting time in, in games where you maybe didn't think about where the game came from, or you didn't think about the background. It was just cool and fun and you, you loved every minute of it. And because of that kind of mystery, I think uh, kids got a lot of leeway making things up <laughs> yeah. about video games. And um, one thing that was not made up, though, was missing no or missing number. And I have a very clear memory of it. Do you remember when you first encountered this thing? I actually don't. I do remember. I do remember because I used missing no. I, I caught missing no. Mm. And I think from just my recollection, I think it was something I read in a video game magazine, some kind of Nintendo power play yeah. something. I don't know what it was, something like that. And they had a description on how you could uh, get missing no and multiply items, I think, because you only had, as, as far as I recall, you only got throughout the entire game of Pokemon Red one master ball that you could mm -hmm. use to catch any Pokemon immediately. And the thing is, obviously, you wanted to keep that to catch, I think, Mewtwo or Mew? Yeah, Mewtwo. Mewtwo. And yeah. so I I kept that. But the thing is that there are other really difficult Pokemon to catch and really rare Pokemon. And so I wanted to multiply that. And there was this exploit glitch that featured this weird thing, this weird creature called Missing No. Yes. Well, that's that's exactly how I heard about it. Um, so not, not in a magazine, although we can talk about that in a minute. But... Um, so when I was, uh, when I was younger, I had an after school program where all the kids brought their Game Boys and we played Pokemon together. And this is where a lot of, you know, trading and playing Pokemon cards, Pokemon was gigantic. It, it can't be, it can't be understated how big Pokemon was when it came out. It was Pokemon cards were literally like a currency on our schoolyard. Yeah. <laughs> and it caused lots of fights if I remember correctly. Mm. But when I was in this after-school program, um, a friend of mine, he said to me, hey, have you, have you heard about this uh, infinite rare candy uh, glitch in Pokemon Blue? Rare candies are the item that uh, instantly level up your Pokemon by one level. And so he said, there's a way to get infinite items, and the way that you do it is you find this mysterious thing called Missing No. And he laid out uh, this kind of elaborate, at the time anyway, seeming scheme to get Missing No to appear. And when I went through all of those steps and got it to appear, it, it felt like I was uh, encountering like a, like a ghost out of an urban legend or something. Because it seems so, when he was explaining to me what it was, this mysterious Pokemon that you, it's not supposed to exist. And if you encounter it, it does strange things to your game. Um, it sounds like a creepypasta, right? And I think that this may be the birth of a lot of creepypastas in a way. 
I think it, Pokemon is particularly prone to creepypastas. If I think back alone to the fact that I had I had a poster on my door at that time that featured all the Pokemon from the first generation, including their types and elemental weaknesses and so on. Yeah. And it was just something that I used to refer to when encountering some kind of Pokemon. I'd like look it up and I'd be like, make tiny check marks if I caught it and so on. Yeah. Although there was one Pokemon that was suspiciously not on there and that was missing no, right? Because yes. it wasn't supposed to exist. It's something that kind of has its own, a, a life of its own, which is why I think it's legitimate that we also refer to it in this episode as the myth of missing no. Yes. Um, and so the myth of missing no turns out to be true. Mm. And the way the way that you get to it, I just want to explain sort of the process. So um, because it's really... As a kid, it's really esoteric and weird. But then as you learn sort of what's happening in the in the game's code when you're doing these steps, um, it makes this uh, this whole thing seem a lot more like something that couldn't happen today for a number of different reasons. So what is missing no? Missing no stands for missing number um, or short for missing number rather. Um, and there's a way to manipulate the random encounters in Pokemon Red or Blue that allows this thing to appear. And the way that you do this is you there's a tutorial um, in one of the first towns. So you watch this tutorial of an old man catch, showing you how to catch a Pokemon. Uh, then you fly, you instantly warp to Cinnabar Island, one of the game's later um, areas. And when you're there, you surf up and down the coastline, and eventually you'll encounter this uh, bizarre uh, I'm, I, <laughs> Pokemon in quotes because it's really it's some strange creature, and it looks like a backwards L. Or if you're an unlucky kid like me, you get traumatized because an unused uh, f sprite for a fossil Pokemon pops up, and it's like a terrifying skeleton. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. So it is to a certain degree random how it looks as well. Yeah. It's sometimes just a mass of uh, glitching colors. Yeah, the that's most... what it was for me. It was for me like an L, like an L-shaped glitch. That that is a, evidently the most common one. Mm. Um, but basically, what the what the glitch is doing is it's this is really this is really cool. What's actually happening? So, walking you back through the steps. The first step is watching the tutorial. Then you fly to Cinnabar Island. Then you surf up and down the coast to find it. So. The really important thing is when you go into the tutorial, usually when a, an encounter would appear, your character appears, the Pokemon trainer. But instead of this, an old man appears and the game recognizes that the character's name, because the sprite is in your place, changes to old man. Now, usually when you would leave that town and go into a new area, all of the... Um, the data that was changed would get kind of overwritten and it would go mm. back to zero so that you would be a Pokemon trainer again. And, you know, anything that had changed in that cutscene, it would be negated. But if you fly instantly to Cinnabar Island, Cinnabar Island is the only place in the game that doesn't automatically overwrite your data. So the game still recognizes that your name is different. Your name doesn't exist. It's not supposed to be old man. Mm, <laughs> and yeah. so... When it sees this, it tries to kind of counter this by pulling other data that doesn't exist, namely missing no. 
the missing number Pokemon that maybe was supposed to exist in an earlier build or is just sort of the game not understanding that you're uh, you're not the old man, basically. And it causes this uh, this glitch in your game where the benefits are you get infinite items in one of the slots in your inventory, whichever item is in the sixth slot. So that's how you get those infinite master balls or rare candies. Um, the downside, though, is that certain areas of the game are glitched permanently, like the Hall of Fame at the end of it. All of your Pokemon look strange. Um, and there's all kinds of other rumors circulating that by doing this, you may actually corrupt your game permanently. Yeah, I was wondering, was there ever something involved in this process where you had to leave your Nintendo system, the SNES back then, or the Game Boy on for over 12 hours or something? Oh, I never heard that. Was that something you heard part of it? Because that's exactly what I did. Um, oh, really? Was, yeah, yeah, that was still at the time, I think... That's the magic about it. At the time, it was not possible to just go online for on a forum where people had already discussed this at length. And that's why you just followed instructions from someone. And I heard that you needed to leave your Nintendo system on for, I think, at least 12 hours or something in order to, to duplicate these items or something like that. Yeah, and that's what I did. That's what I did. And I actually got these, like, 99 Master Balls eventually. Yeah. But uh, I, would say, I would say it was a little bit difficult to explain to my parents why they were not allowed to turn off the Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't understand. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm hacking the system. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like hacking the system. I think this is so, so interesting about your explanation that you just gave by paralleling what you would actually do in the game and what would happen on a level of, uh, let's say, the, the functional operations in the code. Because what you're really doing, and this is the case, I think, for many of these types of glitches and exploits, is by triggering certain actions in a very specific order that have make absolutely no sense in the diegetic world or in the fiction of the game, you're basically fumbling around with the code. You're writing code. You're, it's actually like a little bit of very abstract form of programming. This is also yeah. how many Super Mario glitches work, where you can directly jump from the first level to the very end of the game, and suddenly you have like a speed run that is only like 20 seconds long of a game. <laughs> Something right. like that. Yeah, I think this is, this is super interesting because it shows how intricately connected the representational layer of the game is with the operational layer of it, which is the code. Usually invisible, but it needs to be very precisely accessed and handled in order to trigger such a, a glitch, such an exploit. Yes, and I think that the the fun of, of this missing no glitch is that um, we can, you, know, you can look back on it now and understand that that's what you're doing. Any, any glitch or, or cheat or whatever you want to call it, you're doing something... You're, you're almost tricking the game. You're rewriting the code, like you say, to do this thing. But what was so, I think what makes this a myth, I think, uh, is that how you couldn't know that's what was happening when you were mm. younger. And so it seemed as though you tapped into this weird secret. And I think what I, what I really loved about this, especially as a kid and then looking back on it, is that Pokemon is... Um, the, the story of it, if you look past just getting the badges and fighting with monsters, it is kind of about um, secret lab experiments that have gone wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you two, like we mentioned, is, mm. is this secretive DNA experiment. And so 
there's something almost as if it's believable that this glitch would exist in the in the narrative of the world because of the other things around it. It totally is believable. It fits the the motto of the game perfectly. It says, "Gotta catch them all." Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and whether this whether, whether missing no is intentionally in there or not doesn't matter. I'm gonna catch that thing, you know, <laughs> because if if it's there, it's it's practically to me. It was a Pokemon. It was the rarest superpower Pokemon. I think you could even. I, I'm not sure whether I was able to fight with it because I do remember catching it and I had it in my list. Yeah. And it was like listed as, you know, like Pokemon 000 in the, in the Pokedex. And yeah. I'm not sure whether it had any actual powers or whether there was anything it could actually do. Like it's not like a ditto that is that is very deliberately coded into the game and having the capability of adopting other Pokemon's uh, attacks and, and powers. Signal was just kind of like a, yeah, it was just kind of a glitch. I don't know what it did when I, when I put it through it into a fight. I think it was, um, cause I did the same thing. I caught it and, uh, I remember, uh, I got into this weird cycle where when I would use it in a fight, um, if it got any amount of experience points, it would go to like level 256, which is a level <laughs> you can't reach in the game, but it's a, it's a, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, uh. Uh, a numeric value that exists in Pokemon technically, but you just don't ever use it. Um, and so Missing No would get to 256 and then he would go back to zero. And yeah, it was, it, it did feel like obviously there's something wrong here, but also it felt like maybe it was a nut you could crack and figure out the secret of. I think this reminds me of games that that are rather, let's say, inspired by such ways of engaging with the mm. technological foundation of it, because we do know that, I mean, Missing No was was certainly at the time very unique, mm. but now we have such games like Undertale or Doki Doki Literature Club, games that basically almost include in the way they, are, they ought to be played, that you go into the system files, it's not, not the system files, but the game files, and that you yeah. write in certain elements or that you erase certain files from the folders and such things in order to manipulate what's going on in the game. And I think that's probably inspired by something like Missing No. I, th I think you're right, and I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think of things like, uh, you mentioned Undertale, like you know the, the myth, I suppose, of Gaster, that character that... Um, has a one in a, I don't know, uh, it's, it's something crazy. The, it's a character that just very, very randomly, you have very, um, small odds of seeing this character, but it's this sort of skeleton looking creepy image that will just appear in certain places. And I, I do get the sense that Toby Fox remembered the, the thrill of seeing missing no and, Oh, wouldn't it be interesting if I put something in the game deliberately that was meant to make you think, did I break the game somehow? Yeah, I think it was for a long time also a speculation of whether Missing No was actually an accident or whether there was something that was supposed to be there. I mm. think it took Nintendo a while to actually respond to this. At least when I encountered the glitch back then, it was still unclear whether this was intentional or whether it was truly just simply an oversight. Yeah. And I think, I, unfortunately, we don't live in a, a universe interesting enough that the latter isn't true. I think it was just a mistake. <laughs> it was just a but, mistake. It, yeah. it was a mistake, but it didn't hinder people at all 
to make it into a thing. Because once, oh, yeah. such a, once such a mistake happens, once such an oversight happens, a glitch occurs, and suddenly a Pokemon exists that was not supposed to exist, I think that is the perfect time to latch onto it and to write, for example, fan fiction about missing no, about a Pokemon that's not supposed to be, and to ex include it into the lore. And I think there are probably people out there who still hope that one day, <laughs> suddenly... Oh. And it, I wouldn't yeah. put it past Nintendo that in one uh, Pokemon installment years later, there's suddenly a thing and it's like missing no <laughs> suddenly part of the yeah. game. They could definitely do that. And that's why I think it's such a powerful myth because it's been explored, exploited, and then included and elaborated upon by an entire community of people dedicated to the world of Pokemon. Yes, and I think that what you're, what you're getting at too is that... Um, there's a certain level of i i wonder if this was meant i wonder if this was intentional i wonder if it's real if it's meant to be in the game and i think that the funny thing about glitches like missing no is that it lends a certain credence to other playground rumors with video games where hey it turned out that missing no was real so i to keep a pokemon example i bet that finding mew underneath the truck is also real Wait, Mew under what truck? This was an old rumor. Again, it propagated in magazines and cheap books, like back before back before the internet was able to debunk all of these things. And there was an idea that there is a there is a truck visible in one town. And the idea was that if you could get to the truck and use the the move strength to move it, you would find Mew underneath it. And I remember hearing that after hearing the missing no rumor. And when the missing no rumor turned out to be true, I moved heaven and earth to try to get to that truck. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not actually possible. It was just a rumor. Just a rumor, as, as far as I'm aware. I, I think it's been debunked at this point. <laughs> but Probably, uh, yeah. Yeah, but there's, there's lots of things like that where there were just these ideas of... Um, Maybe this is something that can actually happen in the game. Another one that comes to my mind was um, spoilers for Final Fantasy VII, I suppose. But you the know, original Aerith, Final Fantasy VII, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. So Aerith dies at the end of Disc One, and I can't tell you how many people I ran into uh, who would say, "Oh, there's a way to revive her and get her back." Mm, yeah, that's wishful thinking. There, yes, yes, that's but wishful thinking. Missing no was real. So maybe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it just it imbues players and player communities with a sense of authorship. And I think that's really something that changed how people looked at such creations like like Pokemon, because suddenly there was this thing that wasn't supposed to be, that wasn't it didn't Nintendo didn't put it in there. Nintendo didn't think about, okay, what kind of significance does this have in the have in the story? So who basically owns, who has the authorship, who has the control over what Missing No is and what it's gonna be in the story? Well, the player communities that have discovered this and elaborated upon it and written guides and walkthroughs and so on. And I think that's just part of its of the, the strength of its myth to imbue mm. players with the power of authorship or at least co-authorship of what happens. It's a part to make one, one tiny fraction of this game to make it truly yours. That's a really, a really interesting point, especially since uh, when Nintendo finally did speak on it, they were all but 
threatening people not to do it, saying, mm. uh, you know, because this is a powerful exploit. You get infinite of any item you want. You can do this any number of times. You can go back and do the tutorial, go back to the island, and you can do this as many times as you want. Get infinite master balls, rare candies, elixirs, whatever you want. And uh, there were um, a few magazines that had this kind of boilerplate warning from Nintendo saying, if you do this, it will corrupt your Pokemon game. It will it will brick your cartridge. Do not do this. Of course, that wasn't true, but they were very were very adamant that you not do this. And so, it does exist in this kind of limbo space where it is part of a Nintendo game, but Nintendo admonishes against it. And it was back in a time where they can't just patch things out of video games. I, I understand Nintendo. I understand that they are so concerned because obviously they. Nintendo are, is a company that very strongly curates it ga its games and playtests and tries to get, at, you know, they're not all about graphics, but uh, they are very competent and very precise when it comes to fine-tuning gameplay. And I think they were very worried that mm. uh, people would just basically break the game and then Pokemon would basically disappear as some kind a little bit like what today is like a goat simulator, you know, where you don't have any control over anything that's going on. That's deliberate, obviously, but uh, yeah. but certainly not a game that you would expect from from Nintendo. But I do also think that yeah, they were they were to a certain degree powerless because once you had that cartridge in your hands, there's no way that you can just you know patch things because nowadays you still have the situation if you buy physical games and you put them into your console or your, in your PC and you do not install any patches that you will often encounter quite a few uh, glitches and things that are completely well, missing nose just like a minor incident in comparison to all the glitches and bugs that are in, in contemporary games yeah. unless you get the day one patch. So I think um, I think the significance of missing no can't be uh, can't be overestimated. I think so and I, I think Maybe we can end this this look back on what I think is just a really um, something that could have only existed at the time. It, it's not something that we can replicate now. It was just kind of a, and not to be over nostalgic, but it was a, a really cool time in video games where the internet wasn't um, as available to everybody. So there was no easy way of debunking things. Pokemon was the biggest thing in the world. And so people were... Uh, ready to eat up anything they heard about it. And Nintendo couldn't, nothing was connected to the cloud, so Nintendo couldn't fix the problem. And so here it is. It exists and has for 20-ish years at this point, 20-plus years. Yeah. So a very interesting footnote in gaming history. That was our elaboration on the myth of missing no, dear listeners. If you have any recommendations or thoughts, we can do this every once in a while to just explore some kind of video game myths. There are quite a lot. We spoke behind the scenes mm. already about potential other myths that we could explore. There are quite a lot out there, um, and I think it's a lot of fun to do so. If you have any wishes or requests, then please let us know. And while you are submitting your requests, I think we'll move on and do some side questing. As you know, dear listeners, in our side quests, we scavenge through the internet and find interesting stories, and we share our own video game impressions of games we are currently playing. And number one is a peculiar story that caught my interest this week. The article that I brought is titled, Dying Light isn't available on Switch's eShop in the UK, 
because it's banned in Germany. And this article is written by Matt Wales. It was published on Eurogamer.net. Now, Dying Light is a game that's developed by Techland, and it has received a pretty well-reviewed Nintendo Switch port last week. It was released on October 19th. However, it turns out that there is a problem with the digital distribution of this Dying Light Enhanced Edition. I think that's what it's called. So the thing is that the release went smoothly on the Nintendo eShop in the US and in Asia. However, for players in Europe, in Australia and New Zealand, the game is, as of the time of recording, unavailable. People were rather stunned by that, and so they took to Reddit. It's like, you know, the game was released, but I checked the eShop, the Nintendo eShop, and I can't find it anywhere. What's going on? A spokesperson from Techland then responded and said the following, quote, If you are talking about the digital version, then due to nature of content, the digital version of the game is currently banned in Germany, where European eShop is officially registered. This is making it impossible to officially distribute the game in European countries and also in Australia and New Zealand. We are currently working with our partner and local authorities to remove the ban as soon as we can. End quote. This means that Dying Light, the original game which came out in 2015, is banned in Germany due to its excessive depiction of violence. However, because Nintendo has its eShop servers in Germany, in Frankfurt to be specific, which is just an hour from here, <laughs> that's the the HQ where it basically manages the entire distribution for European countries, for Australia, and for New Zealand. That is why they can't put it up, they can't put it online, and it's unavailable in many regions across the globe. It is very peculiar, right? Because the youth protection, the restrictive youth protection and the ban only applies in Germany. It doesn't apply to any of these right. other countries, yet the game is still unavailable there. So I've been thinking about this a little bit. And I've been thinking, what can be done? Mm. So first of all, if people are out there that say, I really want to play this Dying Light Enhanced Edition on the Nintendo Switch, which apparently is pretty cool. I haven't played it, obviously, because I live in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> but it's supposed to be pretty cool. Then the physical version, the physical copy is regularly available as long as you're not living in Germany. You can buy it in stores because the Nintendo Switch is still a system that where every system offers a, a, a cartridge slot. This would be difficult if it was mm. for the PS, a PS5 game where some people have a PS5 digital edition and there's just no way to purchase it. So simply buying the physical copy is an option. Another option is to just wait it out a little bit because Techland is currently working to get the ban lifted. And I reached mm. out to the German Youth Protection Authorities and I've gotten a, res a response from them that it is indeed technically possible. So there are several conditions under which it is possible that a ban is lifted. Um, they're like default settings, such as when the game is older than, I think, 25 years, or older than 20 years. I'm not quite sure of the, of the number. I don't have the email in front of me right now. Then uh, the game will be automatically taken off the index unless there's some persistent concern, such as in the case of Nazi propaganda video games, for example. But in the case, right. I think that happened with Doom, if I recall correctly, because Doom was originally on the index in Germany. But of course, many years later, the depiction of violence in Doom is 
not as intimidating anymore as it was back then. So it just gets removed from the list. That's interesting. So uh, there is there's a time limit in the sense that, uh, oh, this violence isn't as violent as it once was. It doesn't look as disturbing anymore. And it, we don't have to mm. worry because the, the goal is always to protect uh, children, to protect minors from this depiction of violence. And the idea is then, okay, this won't affect children or minors in the same way as it did back when the game came out. So this is this is different because you know in the we have the ESRB. I think there's the Peggy system in in the UK. In, yeah, in many um, European countries as well. They have the Peggy system. Um, oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So there are these sort of um, these rating systems in place. So what is there is there a reason that Dying Light seems to be outside of that system? And it's for Germany. Germany has basically two systems that interlink. One is the mm. USK, that's the Unterhaltungssoftware Selbstkontrolle. It's the Entertainment Software Self-Control, basically. This is very similar to how oh, the ESRB okay. works, as far as I'm aware, because this is really the industry rating its own games. Um, this is where you get these labels of, like, you know, for six years, 12 years, 16 and 18. Um, and then there's another institution which was previously called the BPJM, the Bundesprüfstelle für Jugendgefährdende Medien. That's, you know, like the, the national um, institution for uh, checking on media that might be Children's dangerous for, for youth and for children. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, that was a very yeah. bad translation. But yeah, that's, that's the name of the institution. <laughs> and the, the thing is that this institution can either, if a game doesn't get a rating from the USK... So if they say, we can't, uh, in all fairness, rate this game, then it can land on the index. Um, or it can also happen that someone says, okay, I'm concerned about this. I want to apply for uh, like a, a procedure to get this game on the index. And then this institution will look into it. And if it's confirmed, it's like a, a lengthy process where the game is very precisely and meticulously assessed, played through, and there's like a gremium, like a like 12 people coming together, 12 experts coming together, and they are basically mm -hmm. evaluating this. And if they conclude um, this is too violent or cynical or disturbing, something like that. Or, of course, often in, I think, a lot of cases, such things, you know, like using symbols that are not protected by the Constitution or that are, are anti-constitutional, such as the swastika, then it lands on the index. There are different categories of the index. Some are... Uh, more strictly regulated than others. Um, dying light mm. is on the softest form of index, as far as I'm aware. Usually with these things that are just excessively violent, they land on the mildest form of the index. And as far as I'm aware, I couldn't get a comment from Techland. I tried to reach out to them. They did not respond, unfortunately. But what I'm really interested in is how likely is it that dying light will get taken off this index? Because they need to make a case for why it now is not... A danger anymore why it's not as disturbing right. or dangerous for uh minors anymore well i wonder too if if the fact that um this is impacting digital sales elsewhere has some sort of urgency attached to it it would seem so yeah it seems so yeah. strange and it it got me wondering i i would really like to see unfortunately the youth protection authorities wouldn't comment on this whether it's not time for Germany to adopt the PEGI system, which is spread throughout the entirety of uh, the EU, as far as I'm aware, and other countries as well. Mm. I think it's just time that we've got, we've got so many countries here. And 
this, to me, it stands in contrast that these countries, they all have their own kind of youth protection regulation for entertainment media. But the distribution market, the digital distribution market is very much global and very flexible. Right. And I think it's just time to have some kind of consistent youth protection system that would apply at least to all countries within the EU. I think that would be a tremendous step forward. I, I mean, I think that I would hope anyway that that's the logical conclusion to situations like this is that eventually there is a, a uniform system by which these games are are rated and you know, or if they are truly heinous, if they're banned or something like that. But yeah, what a, what an interesting, um, I, I mean, it's a, it's definitely a bigger issue when, uh, the servers are in Frankfurt yeah. where it, <laughs> you can't just say, well, that's a Germany problem. Well, actually it's, it's impeding a lot of other sales at this point. Right. So exactly. I can understand that people are people are confused when if, if imagine you live in Australia, which is like the time difference between Germany and Australia. That's nine hours. That's like I think right. that's a little bit further than you are from me. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's this is so <laughs> far away, and that people are then like, wait, what? This is because it's banned in Germany. We can't we can't purchase it here. That's really weird. It's just it's just really messy. Yeah. So a couple of things there. The the. <laughs> the the um unintended uh international ban because of this or you know uh, difficult access to it but also i think um the conversation that you bring up is uh okay well if it's on the softest end of this scale then and and we've already agreed that violence is uh relative you know the the kind of level of violence is relative i would think that you know, I obviously don't know their their criteria for how they determine what is banned and what isn't, but it seems a very arbitrary system. Yeah, I can understand that. And I think there's been much discussion here for many years already whether we shouldn't reserve the proper ban, the index, only for games that are, for example, Nazi propaganda, child pornography, mm. uh, such material, where it's pretty much universally agreed upon that these things are ought not to be sold Whereas with some, whereas I think, I personally would wonder, isn't it possible to say when it comes to the explicit depiction of violence, these things just get a rating of not for minors and that means only 18 and above right. and then everyone can basically make their own choices. You need to then make sure that people can, you know, maybe you need to restrict advertisements a bit, maybe shops shouldn't be mm. allowed to have it directly at the storefront or next to the cashier where children's are usually allowed, maybe there must be some kind of some kind of a section of stores. I remember that from when I was, you know, when when video rentals were still available. I don't know how it was in the US where there was like a yeah. secluded store, a secluded space for like 18 and above. And that had like some slasher films and some porn and so on. I never really spent much time in there. Once when, once I was 18, I once peeked <laughs> <laughs> because I was so curious. And it was like, oh. What's behind this velvet curtain? Like, uh, okay, so that's where all these people with these uh, weird brown bags are always coming out of. <laughs> but it was really yep. not too appealing to me though because at the time the internet was still it was already around and you know there were not many people that would rent let's say a porn movie from a from a video rental store but i think there yeah. my point is <laughs> my point is that it's i think there are better ways to enforce uh, youth protection which i am very much in favor of rather than implementing a ban for a game because of the excessive depiction of violence I agree. I, uh, I'm, rem I'm reminded of, um, 
when I when I went to a rental store, uh, I tried to get, I think I tried to get a GTA game, and I was I was not old enough for it. And uh, I just remember the the clerk. He he didn't need to be this mean, but I just it's a funny memory in retrospect. He just said, "What are you really playing at here? Really? You know, he was he was so he was so snotty about it. He didn't let me get it, but." Yeah, so there's other protections. If if we enforce them, then you know kids will be all right. They won't have to see all the all the good violence that we keep for ourselves as adults. I guess kids will be <laughs> all right. And with that, I would say let's move on to number two. Yes. Yeah, so um, we talked a bit about nostalgia in our main story today um, with missing no, and I wanted to talk about something that um, a friend of mine would call vicarious nostalgia, i.e. accessing nostalgia that didn't actually belong to you. And I've been tapping into a lot of that because I've been playing Yakuza 0 mm. um, and I've been getting back into it. And as you know, Stefan, I'm a Japanese scholar. I love the language and the history. And um, Yakuza 0 has all kinds of great things in it. Um, but the thing that I've found has drawn me to it has been the depiction of uh, Japan in the 80s. Mm. Um, and it's a time that, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't around for that, obviously, but I've read about it and playing through Yakuza 0, there's a moment in the opening, uh, the opening cut scene where the 80s, before the bubble economy burst in Japan, was a time of uh, incredible excess and people just throwing money at everything. And there was something that I had only ever read about, and it was fun to see it in in a video game, which was in the opening cutscene, you see people on the side of the street waving uh, just fistfuls of cash to cabs wow. as they were driving by, trying to trying to flag them down. And it's I remember reading in um, in one one history class about sort of post-war history in Japan that uh, you know that was something that would happen where you would just, the cabs would drive by and they would see who has the biggest wad of cash in their hand. And then that's the person they'd pick up. That's one of these, that, that is one of these beautiful details for which I really love Yakuza. I haven't played Yakuza Zero myself. I've only played Kiwami and Like a Dragon. But I do think that this, this proper dedication to Japan and Japanese culture is just truly inspiring. I mean, what a commitment. Yeah. And I think walking around, um, you know, Kamurocho or uh, Osaka in the 80s, this kind of version that they've created where there's um, cabaret clubs and all of these different uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, seedy shops where you can uh, watch videos of girls or, you know, call a random stranger, um, you know, or just go and pick up a bowl of ramen next mm. door after, <laughs> after you engage in that. It's such a it's such a cool look into something that um, it's, it's strange to me because who knows if that's really what it was exactly like, you know, we, I, we can't know, but from what I've read and what I've, you know, engaged with um, it definitely feels like a, a time machine going back to this place that I wouldn't have had access to otherwise. Do you feel like this time machine holds up its own age? Because I remember that I, Back when I started playing Yakuza, I was wondering, should I play Yakuza 0 first or the remake of the first game, which is Yakuza Kiwami? And I went for Yakuza Kiwami mm. because I thought that Yakuza 0, despite the fact that it's technically chronologically the first game, it is also 
rather old at by this time, right? Does it still is it still like an enjoyable game? Yeah, I think uh uh yeah, it's a few I think a few years now. It's it's definitely older than um than it I think it's older than it feels, mm. I guess is the best way I could put it. Um and I think that the um the the cutscenes and the animations and just the the general um construction of of the world is it still holds up i would say among any other it doesn't well okay it doesn't look as good as like a dragon but uh it's still i think there's kind of a um uh sort of a uh, a sheen or like a film on everything that really makes it work as a period piece um for a time that i think from from what i gather in the story this is a time where um similar to uh the sopranos there's this idea that there was this mythical time of the mob where things were perfect and it was it was you know these old traditional guys and then you go back to that time and you realize there's just as many problems here as there would be in the modern day and and i think um seeing it kind of grimy and and gross is uh a testament to how yakuza is very aware of itself and its history i think that can sometimes add to the aesthetics when it's especially mm. when you would take something that works in its blurriness and in its neon lights and everything's a bit more you know yeah grimy as you said if you were to remaster that and make it completely clean it wouldn't work yeah so i could imagine that it holds up fairly well i just looked it up as well and yakuza zero actually came out in 2015 so that is uh, that is quite an old game but i guess the yakuza games in general don't seem to me like the kind of games that are um, always up to scratch when it comes to let's say technological fidelity yeah i agree and yet if you had told me that came out in 2018 i would have believed mm, you too yeah um it, it's it has a sort of um i guess a timeless late ps3 into ps4 era <laughs> aesthetic yeah to it. It, it was released originally on on ps3 and playstation 4 in march 2015 so it was released on both both consoles and interestingly enough it only came to North America and Europe for the PS4 in January 2017. So it took the game was already two years old by the time it had come to the West. Yeah. Well, I, uh, very, very enjoyable experience so far. And uh, yeah, that, that sort of feeling of vicarious nostalgia of um, I feel like I have nostalgia for a time I never experienced is very palpable in that game. Well, I mean, I'm currently having a bit of a tough time, if I'm being very honest, if we move on to, to number three. Yes. <laughs> because the thing is, <laughs> I, I spoke about that on the show that I finished Kena Bridge of Spirits, and afterwards I thought, okay, so what am I going to play? What am I in the mood for? And then I saw there was this sale, and on sale was Devil May Cry 5, the special edition. It was pretty affordable. I think it was around, you know, 20 euro. And uh, so I started playing that on the PS5. It's a game by Capcom, and it came out in 2020, November 2020. Ah, oh, man, and I struggle with this game. I struggle so hard. I really want to like it because the thing is, I played DMC, the reboot. I think that was by Ninja Theory. Was it Ninja Theory? Yes. And yep. I loved that game. DMC was, I remember back when I, when I saw DMC first, it was at a presentation. Ninja Theory was presenting the game and I had an appointment there and they showed this kind of like 
gigantic monster fight. I think it was called like the special ingredient because there was this like energy drink that had this weird, disgusting stuff mm. in it. And this thing was just like cursing and swearing and screaming at you. And there were all these kind of like writings on the wall that would insult you while you play through this. And it had this wonderful soundtrack, this score composed by Noija. I think that's the, the, the artist who did this. It was so on point. I really love this game. And then I come in with high expectations into with Devil May Cry 5. And this is actually now the, as far as I'm aware, Devil May Cry 5 is the game that is developed by the original developer again. Yes. So they had this kind of X course with Ninja Theory, and now they bring it back home to the actual original developer studio who conceived the series to begin with. And I just find myself so disappointed. <laughs> well, so disappointed. I, I love this because I, and you hadn't played, before you played DMC, you hadn't played Devil May Cry 1, 2, or 3, 4, or anything like that? None whatsoever. Only the DMC, and then now I'm coming into 5. This is, you may be, uh, you may be the case of the opposite happening, where um, I, re I remember when DMC came out, the backlash that that, I, I like that game fine. I think it's, I think it's really fun and, and dynamic. Um, but the backlash that game got from original yeah. Devil May Cry fans, um, yeah, this isn't Devil May Cry. You've changed, you know, you're you're mocking us, all this stuff. Um, and I just love the that you had the reverse experience where DMC was so enjoyable for you, and now you're going back to the original story, and you're like, what is this? Ah, <laughs> oh, that's exactly my feeling. It's like, what is this? I I knew. Obviously, I know that Devil May Cry is a game that is over the top. It's really an over the top action hack and slash video game. And that's exactly what I expected. And to a certain degree, it holds up to that. Have you played it actually? Just so that yeah. I'm not. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so you have your impressions as well. Because I, um, it holds up to my basic expectations. It is, I would say, for what it's worth, an enjoyable hack and slash video game. Um, it's get a lot of stuff for you to learn and to explore when it comes to combat and timing and uh, techniques and skills and so on. It's not like terribly boring, but the thing is that there are so many things about DMC 5 now that are completely off to me. Mm. And, and these, it starts with the fact that the story is to me nigh incomprehensible. Uh, yeah. It, it, it might be because of the fact that I haven't played the previous games, but it's like, well, <laughs> yeah, it, it is also could it, it's just it's a lot of of like babbling about very high level abstract concepts and demons that never really appear in the game. And even though I watched this kind of introductory video on the story of, of Devil May Cry, I can't really follow what's going on. I know there's some kind of thing with here and this person and that person. But it doesn't really feel, it doesn't grab me. It, it doesn't give me any good reason to, to be passionately involved in the story. I, I completely understand where you're coming from. Um, when I played, because uh, I, I like the Devil May Cry series quite a bit. Mm. Um, but I don't like it for the story. I, I've never been in it for the lore. And I know there are people who are. Um, Devil May Cry 3 is probably the strongest where um, uh, there's there's a character relationship in that game that I think is probably the best the game has ever been in terms of writing and being coherent. Um, but then I think right around 3 opened up a lot of like weird things 
and then four continued in that vein. So five feels like the culmination of a lot of, like you said, abstract, weird ideas. And the the relationships at the heart of of the story seem to be second fiddle to the weirdness of it. And I can absolutely understand as someone who played it, who likes the other games, who was kind of put off by that, you going into it, having having not <laughs> played those, I can see where you'd be rolling your eyes, you know, every five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's really tough. It's I, I enjoy the cutscenes because the cinematography is really cool and it's really over the top and it has it has its style. I can understand obviously when Ninja Theory rebooted DMC, um, they draw from the style aspect and this obsession with coolness and so on that was already present in, in previously Devil May Cry games. And I can see that. That is still there. But it's just, it just doesn't click. There's so many like one-liners that don't really land and <laughs> just feel a little bit like, mm, okay, like I see what you're trying to do, but it's just not as cool as you think it is. Like that's <laughs> that's how I often feel. I think that... Uh the the weird um the weird magic of devil may cry 5 is that uh i almost wonder i don't think it's this sophisticated but i, I almost wonder if the point with those one liners that don't land is that these characters aren't as cool as we thought they were and now they're getting older <laughs> and so they're they're less cool just naturally like dante to me feels like a dad in that game he's making a lot of jokes that i could hear my father saying <laughs> If yeah, you were in these, yeah. So I think, uh, especially if it's your first entry into the the original series, it's uh, you might say to yourself, "Why did people think this was cool?" <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. It's especially because I I understand that there was a lot of backlash against the Dante from the previous from from DMC. Yeah, but uh, I, I weirdly like that guy for being such a you know douchey but genuinely funny dude. Yeah. Um. And and uh, with the in, in Devil May Cry Five now it is the case that you play as three characters as Nero as V and as Dante and all of these three characters are constantly like mixed through like in almost like not every mission but you always play these short missions that are I would say like, maybe twenty minutes to thirty minutes at max long and uh, you play as different characters that have entirely different control schemes mostly different control schemes and that's also something that i struggle with a bit because i know that i know that devil may cry is supposed to be intricate i know that it's about learning and studying the combos learning the timing properly and then the satisfaction of putting them into action when fighting demon hordes however um while i had just wrapped my head around the basic moveset of Nero and v Nero who fights mostly in the very conventional way with a sword and he's got like a grappling hook and he's got his main feature is that he's got an arm that uh, is like a breaker it's called breaker and he can extend, uh, switch it for different kind of functions yeah he's got his uh his metal gear solid 5 arm <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. and but he's also got some weird things like uh, that was very very much at the beginning of the game where I was just confused there's a system where Nero in his sword there's like an engine okay yeah. I can believe that. I believe that uh, Squall from Final Fantasy VIII had like a, a gun that a could gun shoot blade. bullets as well. Yeah. A gun blade. Yeah. yeah. So I can, I'm fine with that. I'm fine that they built like an engine into the blade, whatever that's supposed to be, to accomplish. So that way you can, you can, <laughs> you can power up, <laughs> you can power up your attacks. But in order to do that, you need to always push down the L2 trigger and not just like quickly push it down, but you need to push it down in the way you would make an engine roar. Yeah. Now, 
this is okay. I can understand that. But it just, for me, what it leads to me doing is just the entire time while I fight, which is already quite complicated, the control scheme, I constantly have to keep hammering the L2 button <laughs> all the time because in order to trigger this, you know, because I think I want to get that, that bonus thing. So it's like... Vroom, vroom, vroom. I just, <laughs> like, I just I love the, the image of you stand, standing in front of Nero and just saying, what are you trying to accomplish with this weapon? <laughs> yes. What is the point what is here? This even? And it gets even worse when I, I personally like V the most v is because very cool. V, it's it's a very indirect fighting system. You summon your demons and you can control them from afar, and uh, that's pretty cool for me. Maybe as someone who's not that involved in in the Devil May Cry fighting system, like generally, I would just want to pull things off a little bit. But I'm not going to go ahead and study this intricate combo system. And um, with V, it's easiest for me to pull off cool things, to have like your Shadow Panther make some cool moves and your Griffin Bird attacks and so on. It's very It's cool. kind of just, it's flashy and cool. I would say that um, my experience was having played the other ones, because I'm, I'm also, Devil May Cry 4 is one that people don't really like. With That's Nero's, mm. Nero's game where he's introduced. Um, I'm a big fan of that game. So I expected that I would like to play as Nero and Dante, but I ended up, thinking V was the most fun to play because of his uh, his fighting style. And like, I agree with you. I think it's it's cool to pull off the different almost summons with the demons that he controls. I thought mm. that was a really great introduction. It is, yeah. It's It gives me some time to think about what I'm going to do, and it's a little mm. bit more strategic almost. Whereas with Dante, my God, I... I really struggle. I mean, I'm really focusing on very few things that I'm actually learning in this game because the thing is that just for people who've never played uh, Devil May Cry, Dante, he's got so he's got four different fighting stances that you can switch through by pressing buttons on the digital pad. And these fighting stances are significantly different in the moveset. And then with the L2 trigger, you can switch through weapons, uh, long-ranged weapons, which you acquire like every second mission and with r2 you switch through on the fly with close ranged weapons which you also acquire all the time and i just think like when does this ever stop it's there's so many (laughs) (laughs) this is my favorite review you've ever done when does it ever stop I've, I have so many weapons now, and I have not enough points to upgrade them at all. I've got no time to learn all of these different things that constantly change. Yeah. That I just think, okay, I'm just going to use the basic blade and then maybe one heavier weapon. And I'm going to use the basic gun and the shotgun. And the rest of them I'm just going to ignore for now because it's just too much for me. I think um, my it's funny because with with the multiple characters in it, it feels so complex and i know that that's why devil may cry fans love it is because there is that complexity however my my favorite devil may cry game is probably the first one and it's because it's it's sort of simple um the first one or three i I think i go back and forth but what i love about the first one is that um as you progress through the game dante unlocks those different things so it feels very progressive and by the end of it you feel like you've had time to kind of get to know all the different weapons and stances so when devil may cry 5 comes around obviously you have the issue of well we can't take those away from dante because he's this established character so we have to introduce all of these all at once on in addition to the other move sets from nero and v and i think 
I, I remember I've only played through five once, but I only really got comfortable with the game on like chapter 15 or something when it, it had already been through a number of cycles of each character where I kind of felt like I knew how they worked. And yeah, that's a, that's a bit much, I think. I feel the same way. I think I do enjoy the fighting and I'm really happy when I can pull off a combo and I'm genuinely mm. trying my best. Like I'm not giving up, but I... I must say it's exactly that problem that they introduced new functions and new weapons, more weapons and stances so quickly that I haven't had the time to get accustomed with even what I've received in the previous mission. And so I just I just tend to say to myself, okay, just forget about this thing for now. I don't know how to use it. And the thing is that in Devil May Cry, really, you can be extremely good at this game. It's a very skill-based game and has a steep learning curve. As That's what I at least the sensation that I get from it. And it was similar in DMC um, where I think it seems to be made for people who study this intricately and then play the different missions over and over to get like triple S ratings on all of these missions. And I think that's a really cool thing that it offers this kind of possibility, but in the way it's introduced, it's just overwhelming to me. It exists in the same spaces of fighting games to me where mm, I, ha yeah. I have a lot of respect for people who are really good at those because it's so fun to watch, but I, I can't get that good with them. It's just not something I'm good at. But then I've got two more questions. Maybe you can explain and, and help a little bit. I'll do my best. What the significance of this is. Sure. The orb system. Um, the, so there's an orb system in Devil May Cry 5. Yeah. Well, I get that there's some in-game stuff. There's some various different kind of orbs and uh, you can you know purchase skill points for collecting them. Uh, you can uh, upgrade your vitality bar and such things. So this is pretty conventional. Yeah. But then you've got like golden orbs that you need to use in order to revive yourself fully. Mm -hmm. um, so whenever you die, you need to use a golden orb and you can purchase them with red orbs that you find. You also get one golden orb as a login bonus every day. Like every day I log in, I get one golden orb. Yep. And you can purchase them. Are they really like harping in on microtransactions by selling you orbs. I think so. I remember uh, when I played through it, um, I was looking at the the DLC stuff, and I think there is, like, you can, you can buy uh, a bunch of orbs all at once to use to level up skills and things like that. So I don't know that they're... I don't know that they're pushing them, because I, when I was playing, it never felt like I was being driven to that. Um, but they're definitely there, which I think more, more games are doing like, um, uh, Tales of Arise or even a Yakuza, like a dragon, you can buy level up items. Um, oh, that's true. Yeah. So I wonder if it's not just something that we're doing now where if you want to make the game go by quicker, you can buy it. Yeah. We're, we're um, just at that point, I suppose. I was just really confused when I saw like login bonus every day you received one golden orb and i thought but this is not this is a single player game you know yeah yeah it's if it, if it was playing a multiplayer game an online game then i would say okay daily login bonus i understand but, th but this leads me to the last question and that is the online feature of devil may cry 5 i, I don't understand it it's um the thing is the game is very bad at explaining some of its features <laughs> some of it, it explains very well and others it doesn't explain at all or just like one line thing that uses some terminology that nobody understands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, there seems to be an online feature in this game. I, th I think like I often have like an insert on the screen where it says that 
sometimes it's just a player name. Sometimes it's uh, it just says the DMC crew, uh-huh. where it seems that other players are currently in my game or I'm in theirs. And I think once even I saw another player in the distance. But sometimes after missions, it asks me to rate the other players, whether they were stylish or not. But I haven't ever encountered them, really. I What, what is this thing doing? <laughs> I have no idea. Because <laughs> I, I, remember, I remember that, too. And I remember thinking, um, is this like, uh, you know, in, in Persona 5, you know, there's the Thieves Guild where you can be saved by, um, mm. by another online character? Or is somebody playing online? Or is this like, uh, is this meant to be like Dark Souls where there's a character invading my level or something? And I I cannot tell you. <laughs> I never figured it out. <laughs> okay. Because as you say, <laughs> Devil May Cry 5 has a million different systems and explains maybe two of them. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I think I like the idea that I was running around in a level and in a the distance there was some fighting going on and I was like, hmm, what's that? And of course, while you're controlling one character, the other two characters have stuff technically in their story happening as well. So I thought, wouldn't that be kind of cool if you saw that someone, another player would be moving around there as, let's say, narrow while yeah. you play, play V. But it only ever happened to me once. But the insert is almost <laughs> constantly there that someone is somehow in my game and I can rate them I, I don't know what the rating system is based on I just I just always say they're stylish because yeah. I don't want to Throw ruin them anyone's rating <laughs> right <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> good job <laughs> well I look I look forward to uh, I look forward to hearing when you finish it how uh, how much sense the ending makes to you <laughs> Well, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't hope for much. I think uh, <laughs> my guess is that I'm, I think I'm relatively far in. It's not a long game, Devil May Cry Five. No, right? no, it's that's uh, say what you will about Capcom, and I know that there's a lot to say about Capcom, but their games are digestible. They're not eighty-hour epics. They're maybe eight to ten, maybe a little longer with Devil May Cry. Yeah, yeah, they're not over as long as it doesn't overstay its welcome. Um, I'll enjoy my engagement with its very intricate, clunky, and overcomplicated combo system. <laughs> and uh, I still, I'm still trying to do my best. I'm doing the best with the skill set that I have, and um, I'm going to try and enjoy it. And afterwards, I'm going to leave it behind, and I'm definitely not going to platinum that game. I was, I was going to ask you because uh, no, I decided never. probably 15 minutes in, I said, "Well, I'm locked in. I got to finish it." But there is no way I'm doing the platinum on this game. No. That's just going to be painful. I haven't yep. even looked at the trophies, and I'm not going to do it. So. No, I think it's not worth the scrutiny. Yeah. Well, dear listeners, thank you very much for joining us on this conversation. Uh, if you want to support us, then you know that you can at any time get Studying Pixels Plus. And something that maybe we don't really mention often is that since it's our Patreon program, you can engage with it, you can get it, mm. and you can obviously cancel it also at any point. Like this is like a Netflix subscription, you know, you, you don't have to commit to it for it's not like a one year phone contract or something or even two years. Of course, if you want to help us out, then we would be very grateful if you went to studyingpixels.com. We would also be very grateful if you went to Apple Podcasts and gave us a tiny star rating. Rate us as stylish on <laughs> Apple Podcasts. <laughs> yes, throw us a bone. <laughs> Whether you listen to the show or not. <laughs> you can submit your thoughts and questions to podcast at studyingpixels.com. And we're looking forward to hear from you next week when we will do, if I'm informed correctly... A very spooky Halloween special. Yes, stay tuned, viewers and listeners. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs>